question. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. It's uh, a few years, uh, I think about four years ago roughly, since I was on this spot, although it was that spot I seem to remember over that side. So uh, a lot has changed uh, in the last four years, and I trust um, the Lord has uh, seen you through those years uh, in grace. I want to read a few verses uh, which tie in a little bit, I think, with um, that passage I'm going to be looking at, especially from verse 9 to 13 in Jeremiah chapter 2. And we're going to read from John chapter 4. So uh, a few verses from John chapter 4 and links in very much with the theme of uh, water, living water. Let's hear uh, God's word here as Jesus meets this woman from Samaria. So John chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course she said, didn't she? Sir, give me this water. She didn't understand all of that perhaps. uh, But I pray that that will be our response Uh, from what we see in God's word this morning. Give me this water. Now, I don't live in Otley. I live just on the near side of Leeds. But I understand from what I do know of Otley that it's a a fairly normal town, fairly average town. Is that right? Not not to be insulting in saying that uh, at all, but that it's representative of this part of the world, perhaps, and and this country. Um, Probably typical of the way things are today in our part of the world, that, that few people... Uh, In general, at least, few people seek God. Few people have any real anchor, therefore, in their lives. And most people in this town, uh, in our land, indeed, largely in the world today, if we were to to expand it that far, live lives, I think, that at least in terms of, of what God tells us in the Bible, lives that are largely uh, weightless, insubstantial, if I can put it that way. Let's face it, for some people, for many people perhaps today, the highlight of their day will be something that is um, fairly flippant or fairly unimportant in eternal terms. Very small, very insubstantial. It'll be a football game that they watch. That'll be the highlight perhaps. Or, or a TV programme or, or a meeting with friends that they have or a, a comment that somebody's put on their, their Instagram or Facebook page. 
or it'll be a video that they watch. It'll be a meal that they enjoy, perhaps with friends or family. It'll be, for those who are at work, the moment that they clock off work today, that'll be the, the highlight of their day, perhaps. Perhaps for many it'll be the new item that they buy today. For the majority of probably this town's population, the world's population even, there is no thought of God, is there? No real substance to their lives beyond the things that they can, they can touch and see and, and smell and taste and hear. The things that are here one moment and, and that are gone the next. Certainly they'll be gone eventually. There's no true sense of eternity, spirituality in the biblical sense of a relationship with God. Now, I, I don't know if you perhaps take the wrong impression from where I'm heading with that, because I don't want to say all this just so we can say, you know, isn't the world a terrible place? All these people that don't come to church, you know, oh, tut, tut, tut. Uh, not at all. Uh, and it's not for us to, to despair at the fact that, that although it, it's wonderful that there's so many of us here this morning, yet we realise we're a drop in the ocean, don't we, in terms of our town. If, if just the people from this street came in, we'd be bursting at the seams, wouldn't we? The same is true of any church, pretty much. It's not for us to despair. It's not for us to, to, to just sort of look around and condemn the godlessness of our generation. Because that, that won't do, at least by itself, that sort of thing won't do good to anyone. It's only going to distance us from people, isn't it? And, and perhaps even make us feel superior in our, our little Christian bubble that we can sometimes have insulated from the outside world. But this is the point. When we see people floating about without any real substance to their life in eternal terms, without any real anchor, what will we offer them? What will we offer them? We have a choice, don't we, on the, on the one hand, to offer them a, a sort of a slightly modified version of their current life. Their current life plus you know, changed around the edges a little, a, a few changes here and there to include God somewhere, to, to get his endorsement, his endorsement of the way that they want to live their life, perhaps, of where they are. And every false religion does that in some way or another, I think. Makes you feel good about the way you want to do things. We could do that. We could offer them a flimsy God, a small God. Or the, the, the other choice that we have is the really radical one, isn't it? That's the really radical one. We can offer them God in all his glory, in all his greatness. We've sung already about the glory of God and what he does to the praise of his glory. We can unashamedly offer them the God of the Bible. We can offer them him undiluted, holy, perfect, mighty in power, unlike any other, independent and not dependent as we are. We can offer them the God who is good, who is loving, who is faithful, who is just, who is full of, of righteous anger, but full of righteous mercy as well. Not an us-sized God, or an us-shaped God, if you like, but a God-sized God. A God who doesn't just sort of sit helplessly by on the sidelines, watching things happening in his creation, watching his creatures and saying, oh dear, isn't that terrible? but a God who works all things, the scripture tells us, to the count, according to the counsel of his will. 
A God who doesn't get embarrassed talking about hell, as we sometimes do, but who punishes sinners eternally. A God who doesn't just accept anyone and everyone in the end, but whose standard is perfection. What do we need most today? What do people need most today? Surely it is to know God and to make him known. And partly this morning, I want us to take a good long look at God. Perhaps we don't do that often enough. Perhaps in the, in the midst of all our, our busyness and, and even our obedience uh, as Christians in church life. Um, and, and perhaps in the midst of our, our, our right and, and our proper concern for applying God's word to our lives day by day and week by week. Uh, we can sometimes, just sometimes, get more caught up with ourselves than with our glorious God. And surely, if nothing else, that's what Jeremiah 2 here is to correct. The less we understand of God and of what makes him great, what makes him good, the less we see ourselves as sinners. Because we can only see ourselves rightly in the light of God, can't we? If God isn't that great, if he's, if he's not that glorious a God, then we're, well, if he's not that great, then we're not that bad either for what we've done in offending him. In order to understand who he really is, if we understand who really is, he really is, in the light of that, we understand who we really are. And in many ways, these are foundational truths for the gospel. Since if, if God is not that great, if, if he's not that glorious, and, and we're not that bad, then, well, then why did Christ have to die? And what are we being saved from? Is it just, you know, a a slap on the wrist? The more clearly we see God, the more clearly we see ourselves rightly as sinners, and the more clearly we see ourselves as sinners, the more we value the wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins. And so looking even at something uh, like the nature of sin uh, and the goodness of God, has a a practical, a great practical impact, I I trust and I pray, on our lives, on our faith, on our hearts, as God seeks to shape them by his word. So I want us to look, to think about what makes God uh, so great. Uh, And this theme, uh, briefly this morning, of of, of God's glory. Um, It may be that we feel a little bit awkward talking about God's glory. It may be that we... Um, you know, that we know that he is glorious, as scripture tells us again and again, and he's worthy of all praise, but that we buy into this, this false idea, this lie that's told by many people in the world, including, you know, the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and so on, and many others, that, that to declare God's glory, to say how glorious he is, as scripture does all the time, is to sort of feed the ego and feed the pride of this megalomaniac, self-serving megalomaniac, which is how they paint God. As if God is somehow tainted by the instruction, the mandate we have in the Bible for us to declare his glory to all the earth, to all people, because it, because it makes him seem smaller and petty. But that's, that's to completely misunderstand uh, the God of the Bible. God doesn't make us just to receive glory from us. If that were the only reason that that would make him small and petty and dependent upon us 
He was already glorious before the world ever began, before any person was ever created. He was already glorious. Jesus, God the Son, he prays, doesn't he, to his Father in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He was already glorious before the world ever was. And this is how uh, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor from long ago, addressed this matter. He says, the pleasure God has is not found in receiving from the creature, but in diffusing to, it means communicating to his creatures. In other words, God doesn't create us because he's he's needy and, and he needs to receive glory but he creates us to communicate to us his glory, his own overflowing life. And Edgewood's thinking about this image of the fountain. He says it, it's, it's not, you know, an argument for God's neediness that he gives to us any more than you'd say of a fountain. It's an argument for the, the neediness of a, of a fountain or a spring that it overflows and gives life. He is the fountain of living waters, as he's called here in Jeremiah 2, 13. So this, looking especially uh, at at verses uh, 11 to 13, I think, as well. What is it that Israel has done that is so awful that God calls them to account for here? What is it that they've done? Well, verse 13 Uh, is really expanding on it's an explanation of of verse 11. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods, talking about other nations, this is, but my people have changed their glory. That's a title for God. Have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And creation is called to witness this. In verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you have this image of of the fountain of living water, this spring of of fresh water welling up and overflowing and giving life. And think about that, especially in a hot country like Israel. It's even more powerful. I mean, I was talking earlier before the service about the, the fact that all the grass died off where I live. I don't know about where you are, but recently in this heat wave, and then it rained a little bit about, what was it, about a week ago, and then it seems to come back to life. And, and you can imagine the image, can't you? This, this fountain of living water. That's God. The fountain of living waters, overflowing in goodness, bringing life, granting life, sustaining life to those who rely upon him. And then... The contrast to that is the, the cisterns, which would, in a hot country like Israel, you would, you would, uh, you would make cisterns in the ground, you'd dig out holes, and, uh, and you'd have them made out of pottery often, uh, but you, it was to collect rainwater, to store water so that you had it for the dry time. Uh, but, but not only is it in opposition to relying upon God, the fountain of living waters, not only are you going to trust that old, possibly stagnant, stale water instead. But, it, but they, they, they don't even work. It doesn't even work. They're broken systems. They're leaking 
water containers. And in this instance, particularly with Israel, he's talking about the idols they've turned to. The fact that they've sought other gods, which aren't even gods, to rely upon instead of the one true God. No other pagan nation even abandons its gods so easily as Israel has, God says here. And yet God says, my people have forsaken me, the living God. And it's just sheer stupidity, isn't it? Forsaking the fountain of living waters for broken systems. Poor, you know, desperately trying to keep water in something that's broken and it's leaking out the bottom and it's, it takes life as opposed to giving life. It throws away the precious life-giving water. And whatever you are trusting in, in your life, whatever is your, your idol, which comes before God in your heart, whatever it is. It could be anything, couldn't it? We'll think about that in a moment. But whatever comes before God, comes before the Lord Jesus in your heart, it's a broken system. It can't hold water. It's leaking. It won't give you life. It will only ebb away your life. It will only waste your only chance at life. And we have to ask fundamentally, why does God say to his people, you shall have no other gods before me? Why did he say that to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt in the desert? Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. At, its most, at the most fundamental level, why does he say that to them? It's, it's because he doesn't want them, obviously, to love anything more than him. It's because he doesn't want us to treasure anything or anyone more than him. But he, he gives us his commandments not to spoil our fun, not to be a spoil sport, but because he loves us. Because he wants the best for us. He loves Israel. He loves us, his special people. And he wants the best. He's a loving father to his children, isn't he? And so he gives us instructions to, to show us what our priorities should be. And, and our greatest priority should be to treasure God, therefore. That's the point of this here. It's the point of Scripture, isn't it? Our heart's priority must be God, nothing else but God in all his glory. And that first commandment states the case negatively, doesn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. You must value nothing above God. And elsewhere we have it stated the flip side of that, the, the positive case, don't we? God coming first in our hearts, stated positively. Jesus himself says in Matthew 22. But when the, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As it says here in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You see how, how far short 
that comes of that standard. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so we can see the point that God's making in Romans chapter 1, for instance, where we're told that the, the wrath of God, the, which is the, the rightful, the righteous anger of God against sin, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we're told that because of the created world around us, which we can see, that, that people are without excuse. They have a witness to what God is like. We have a witness. And then from Romans 1, verse 21, we have this, this damning and this very revealing diagnosis, don't we, of the, of the problem of sinful mankind. This is what it says in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is the point that I want to make here. We won't really understand sin in any true way until we get a grip on the glory of God, which we forsake, which we, which we throw out the window or try to in, in sinning. We'll think of sin... If we don't have a, a proper idea of how glorious, how great God is, we'll think of sin in, in what are correct but very shallow terms. So we'll think of sin as being disobedience to God and rebellion against him. We'll think of sin as, as, as being less than we should be. We'll think of sin as, as missing the mark. Of, uh, think of sin as putting ourselves first and and not doing what we know to be right, and, and so on. We could say much more. And, and of course, all those things are sin, make no mistake. All those things are sin, but they're not an exhaustive definition. And in a sense, they don't quite get to the root of the matter. And the root of the matter, I think, in, in some ways is this, that when we sin, when we disobey God, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for something less. We exchange God, the God who is great and perfect and holy and loving and true, for something less when we sin. In sinning, we're turning away from God for that which, as it says here, that which does not profit. In verse 11. Sin, at heart, is to not be satisfied with God. It's an awful thing, isn't it? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. It says in verse 11, verse 13, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Uh, the uh, Christian writer, John Murray, when he's discussing sin, specifically he's talking about sin in the, in the Garden of Eden, he, he says this, he says Satan's attack was directed against the integrity, veracity, or truthfulness, the integrity, veracity, and loving provision of God, and consisted in an enticement to wicked and blasphemous rebellion against man's proper Lord. So Satan's attack, this is in the Garden of Eden, it applies elsewhere to us as well, was directed against the integrity, veracity, and loving provision of God. 
Uh, that's always the case for us as sinners. That in sinning, we give in to this temptation to believe that what God gives to us is not enough. That actually he himself is not enough for us. He's not enough. He's not good enough for us. And John Murray goes on to say, in this act, further sinning, man blasphemously withheld the worship and adoring love, which is ever his proper response to God's majesty and grace, and instead paid homage to the enemy of God and to his own foul ambition. So this is the point that that, that I want to make here. As God says here to his people in Jeremiah 2, when God himself is not enough for us, that is sin. When we abandon him, the fountain of living waters, what what a beautiful image he uses to describe himself. When we abandon him, it's because we foolishly think that what he provides for us is is not best. And we'd rather go with the, the stale water leaking quickly away in the broken system. And isn't Romans 1, which I read earlier, verse 22, a, a great summary of what our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, did in Eden when they took the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat? Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's Adam, that's Eve, that's us. We can't look down on them, can we? We can't throw stones at them because we've followed them along the same path. We've declared that we're wise whenever we've, we've sinned because we think we know better than God. We've, we've said, you're not good enough. You're not enough for me, God. I know a better way. And we've become fools in failing to be satisfied with God, the fountain of living waters. Turning away from God in that way. We see how stupid it is, the fountain and the broken system, don't we? I mean, we could, we could say it's like if you've got a brand new, you know, gleaming Rolls Royce. And you go along to a, a used car dealership and you, you trade it in for a clapped out old... 1980s Ford Escort. Uh, uh, you know, you have to push away from the dealership because it won't start. And you say, I've got a good deal. No, you haven't. It's like trading in your, your mansion, isn't it, in, in Mayfair for a cardboard box under a motorway bridge and thinking you've chosen the best portion. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and chewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I want to ask, what broken cisterns are are you tempted to rely on instead of God? And it's a question I have to ask myself as well. What broken cisterns, what broken water containers are we tempted to rely on instead of God, the fountain of living waters? Is there something in your life that you turn to for comfort, for hope, for strength, to get you through instead of God, the living God? Might you try to to, to rest your security on your job, on your friendships, on on your reputation perhaps, on your hobbies, your interests, things you're interested in, on anything instead of the God who made you? And Jesus, when he came into this world, he he specifically applied this language 
of living water to himself, didn't he? He said, this is about me, and this is about what I can give you. As we saw in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, he asks for a drink of water, and when she says, well, you know, how are you going to do that? Uh, if you knew the gift of God, you know, I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And he goes on to say, doesn't he, whoever drinks of this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. We read later in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said that about the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, because he wasn't yet glorified. It's through Jesus Christ that we're to come and we're to drink of this living water, this life-giving water, the only life-giving water there is. And in order to, to know that and to be assured of that, we must be confident of the goodness of God. Not just that he's, 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 he's glorious in a kind of, you know, a scary way or an awe-inspiring way, we might say, but that he is good and sweet and lovely. If we want to draw this to the Lord Jesus, we must be convinced of that, don't we? If we don't have such a high view of him, that he's so wonderful, ever perfect, ever gracious, ever loving, our Lord Jesus, we won't want others to know him. We won't want to bring others and tell them about him. At least we won't, for the right reasons, want to do that, because our hearts are really in it. The, um, the Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, was, I think he was called, he had a few nicknames, but I think he was called the Honey Mouth. Um, and also the sweets dropper, because it was said that, that he, he just had so much wonderful, delightful things to say about the Lord Jesus. Uh, and apparently hardened sinners would stay away from his preaching, stay away from his sermons in case they would accidentally be, be saved, be won over by this delightful picture of the Saviour, this lovely Saviour, Jesus Christ. And they didn't want to forsake their sins. Jesus stands ready, doesn't he, to receive us, to receive sinners. And he offers us joy and delights when we come to him. Just as we would expect from the fountain of living water. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he goes on to talk about his yoke, doesn't he? I mean, we think of that image of the yoke. That it's, it's a burdensome image, but he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think of what the psalm says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do we believe these things? Do we believe that God is really so good? The Lord Jesus is really so sweet. Because if, if someone has a view of God, of the Lord Jesus, that sees him as, as grim and foreboding or, or, or less than sweet, less than delightful, they probably, have, they probably don't know him. They've probably forgotten what he's like. There's, um, there's a verse of a hymn I remember singing growing up. Um, the hymn's Jesus is King and I will extol him. And there's one of the lines which 
It always sticks in my mind. O Holy One, our hearts do adore you. Thrilled with your goodness, we give you our praise. And I find that very convicting, you know. I don't know if... if those things, sorts of things are easy to, 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 to say, aren't they? To sing. But they're harder to pray, to put into practice. Can we really say, Lord Jesus, I'm thrilled with your goodness. I'm thrilled with how wonderful you are to me and for me. Are we really thrilled with the goodness of God? Because we should be. That's what we learn here. He's the fountain of living waters. And are we truly excited about it? Are we truly delighted in the goodness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the alternative that we're given here is so shocking and so appalling that even the heavens, even the creation should shudder and shake and be appalled and astonished, we're told. That we should turn away from God the one true God, who is the fountain of living waters, the glorious one, the source of all life, the sustainer of all life. And we should seek to be satisfied by something or someone else. Make sure you, you understand the horror of that statement. It's awful. No wonder God calls even creation as witnesses in that sense. And this valuing of God above all else should impact on our, our whole lives, every area of the Christian life. I remember uh, seeing a, a, a scene in a sitcom years ago. And uh, the wife had got home and uh, was, she said to her husband, why haven't you done the dishes? Uh, and he said, uh, oh, well, you didn't ask me to do the dishes. And she said, oh, well, I, I shouldn't have to ask you to do the dishes. I, I, I want you to want to do the dishes. And he says, well, I'll do the dishes if you want me to, uh, if you ask me to, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, you can't ask me to want to do the dishes. That's just not reasonable. I mean, who likes doing the dishes? And, um, you know, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps sometimes as men, at least, uh, being very literal and slow and, and dull of heart about these things, and, uh, you know, we say, why would I ever want to do the dishes? And, and we just don't get the point underneath you know, I will do them if you ask me to. Perhaps you've said that if, if you're married. I will do them if you ask me to, but you can't ask me to want to do them. And unless you have a particular love for cleaning dishes, uh, for doing the pots, then, then you'll never want to do them, will you? Unless, unless, because you love your wife so much, you genuinely want to do them. Apply that in a thousand different ways, I'm sure. <laughs> Not just dishes. But that's the only way that you'll ever want to do them, is it? Isn't it? If you genuinely love her so much. You want to do them out of your love for her. And how often in our heart do we say to God, you know, words to this effect. I will do this, God, if you ask me to. I, I, I will do it, but you can't ask me to want to do this. I'll serve you in this way, but you can't ask me to sort of enjoy doing it. It's not very nice. You know, it's quite burdensome. Do you know what I mean by that? We approach obedience in that way. But I don't think we realize if we do that, 
or when we do that, what an insult to the glory and the greatness of God that is. If we, if we sort of grudgingly accept obedience as just being part of the bargain as a Christian, that it, that, you know, it comes along with a package and, oh, you know, it's there in small print. It's just like doing the chores in a marriage. Well, no one really likes it, but you've got to do it. Life of a lumper. But, but whenever we take that attitude towards serving God, being, towards obeying him in any sense, outwardly or inwardly, even if we do the things outwardly that we're supposed to do, if we take that attitude and we're outwardly obedient to God, it's sinful. Because we're betraying the fact that, that God isn't our treasure. We don't truly regard him, do we, as the fountain of living waters to us, the source of all life and joy and fulfillment. And aren't we then more like the Pharisees who, who loved money, didn't they? They loved to be praised by others, but they didn't love God. So what do we need most today? What do people in this town, in this neighborhood, need most today? Surely it's to know God more and to make him known and to be truly satisfied with God. Satisfied with our Savior, the Lord Jesus, whom God has provided. Who is your God? Is it the, the Lord God of hosts? Is it the fountain of living waters? Or is it something else that rules your life? Have you dug yourself a, a, a broken cistern, to use that phrase here, that can hold no water? Which is something that even the universe itself, even creation itself, should be appalled at. This is what 1 Peter 3 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ came into this world, didn't he, as Emmanuel, which means God with us. God the Son stepped into our world to be God with us, that we might be with God, that we might be his, and that he might be ours. And there's nothing better that we can seek or that we can be satisfied with than this loving and perfect God, the fountain of living waters. Amen. We're going to uh, sing in a moment our, our final hymn, Come People of the Risen King, who delight to bring him praise. And I pray that we would sing with joy in our hearts and with a clear, with our eyes upon our Lord Jesus. Let's stand and let's sing some people of the risen King.